Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show which brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, and experience from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe so you won't miss a new episode. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Moriba Ya. Moriba, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Mariba, I'm going to briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you call yourself a space environmentalist, uh, PhD in University of Colorado. Uh, you're currently an associate professor in aeros uh, aerospace engineering. Uh, have a background in uh, we're working with NASA. Start actually with awarded the NASA space grant student. You worked on the Mars program. Um, you've been awarded the NASA Space Act Award along with numerous other awards. So we're going to talk about space today and specifically space environment. Again, thank you for coming. Thank you. And uh, first question, uh, when I look at your website and see the mission, when you look, look at your uh, um, uh, uh, say, um, academic outsense, uh, mission is assessing, quali uh, quantifying, and predicting the behavior of objects in space both man-made and natural. Why is that a mission for you? Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> I guess for a couple of reasons. If we just look at space exploration in general, you know, we as a humanity, <clears throat> excuse me, we as a humanity need to uh, venture out uh, off the planet and uh, be able to look at the possibility of settling in different parts not just of the solar system but the universe because eventually uh, our sun runs out of heat mm -hmm. and um you know spaceship earth as we know it will have an end for sure i mean everything does but if we really want to extend the um the expiration date of humanity then you know exploring space is something that we need to do and certainly you know, there are only so many resources on the planet, the ability for us to take advantage and utilize resources elsewhere uh, makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, uh, understanding the behavior of objects in space, uh, natural or anthropogenic is of interest because we need to get to places and we need to get to places safely. And uh, unless we coordinate and understand how to do that, then it jeopardizes space exploration. But I would even say that the second reason, which is more, uh, you know, hitting home kind of thing, is that by and large, these robots in the sky that we call satellites provide us with services and capabilities that are very unique. And more and more of our technology infrastructure is space-based. Everything from, you know, GPS with position navigation and timing to financial transactions to uh, weather uh, and climate change monitoring um, and even, you know, wars in Ukraine, that sort of stuff. Satellites provide us with unique data and these satellites are not protected from being harmed by junk. And, um, and to quantify the junk, I mean, we're, we're tracking about 50,000 objects, human-made objects, uh, ranging in size from a cell phone to the space station, and about 5,000 of those work and everything else is trash. So like 90% of what we track in space is garbage. Okay. 
So uh, a clear reason why that mission is a very relevant mission. Now, um, on the backtrack a little bit, how did you start your career in space? Was it always something you wanted to do when you grow up or how did that happen? Yeah, so, um, you know, even though I was born, uh, you know, in 71 and the Apollo program was still happening, I don't have many memories of that. My first real memories of space are associated with the space shuttle program, uh, you know, Challenger and and that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, uh, that was, um, yeah, it was horrible. I remember being in high school when Challenger happened and that sort of thing. So I always, I guess, was mesmerized with space and astronauts and these sorts of things, very dreamy um, thing uh, that I had. But, you know, it wasn't until, um, you know, after, High school, I was in a military school in Venezuela. When I graduated from there, I came back to the United States um, and I enlisted in the Air Force. And my job was to be a security guard guarding nuclear missiles in Montana. And it was the first time in my life that I had been in a place with such dark skies. Because uh, growing up in Caracas, Venezuela, you know, most people live in big cities and they don't know what a dark sky looks like. But when I was exposed to a dark sky, I realized how uh, unalone we are. Like when I looked at the night sky, I'm like, it's jam packed with stars and planets and all this other stuff. And I just never realized how populated the universe was. And, um, and I could see dots of light going across the sky. And these dots of light, turns out they were satellites reflecting sunlight. And that was mesmerizing to me. So that was the first time that I said, hey, I'm really curious about this and I'd like to know more. And so that's why I got out of the military and ended up studying aerospace engineering and focusing on astrodynamics. Great, great. Um, and studying astrody astrodynamics, uh, do you have the urge to go into space yourself, by the way, or is it just observing it? Look, man, um, you know, a lot of people have this whole desire to, to, to go into space. Um, this idea of, um, you know, going to like the space station and just be orbiting the earth. I have zero interest in that. Um, because, you know, things are in orbit because there's a lot of gravity. Like some people say, oh, you know, zero gravity. That's not true. Uh, things are in orbit because of gravity. Um, just to give a quick explainer, it's like if, if I have a tennis ball and let's say the tennis ball is the space station and I have a string and my fist is the earth and I spin it around, that motion of the tennis ball is basically the space station. And the thing that keeps it going around is the string. String is gravity. What happens if there's no gravity? Take the scissors to the string, ball keeps on going, right? So the reason things are in orbit is actually because of gravity. But everything is falling towards the Earth at the same rate. And I don't know about you, man, but when I picture myself jumping off of a plane and never hitting the ground and always falling that experience of always falling it doesn't sound like fun to me so that's not my thing yeah okay no i, I got that although i do uh, i did a lot of mountain climbing in my time so and parapunting so i understand a little bit that people do want to go up but that's not the topic for today now um uh, when when we met in um, uh, Geneva, we also briefly talked about the need for accountability in space. Yeah. Uh, 
that brings me also, I'm looking at the website of the company you founded, Private Air Space, which you've got found with uh, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and Alex Fielding. You're the mm-hmm. scientist there. And one of the things which really hit me when I looked at that page is uh, there are 27,000 human-made objects in space currently, although more because you said we, have, we track about 50,000 plus uh, pieces of garbage in space. Right. But also we're going to put up over 24,000 satellites in space in the next 10 years. Yeah. Uh, should we, well, first of all, should we do this, uh, given all the junk which is already there? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So um, I think that satellites provide great use for humanity. I think we need satellites. So we shouldn't stop launching or having them. However, um, I don't think that everybody needs to launch one. And, and, and so, um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's like, uh, if I was living in, um, some places in Europe, I can tell you that I wouldn't even have a car because I would just use the public transportation. It would make sense. And if I needed to have a car, I would just hire a car, rent one. Uh, and go someplace, right? But um, here in the United States, for instance, uh, especially living in a place like Austin, Texas, where I'm at, public transportation isn't that great. So it's like everybody has a car. And what is the what what is the outcome of everybody having a car? Traffic jams, stress, accidents, that sort of thing. So um, space is kind of similar. I don't think everybody needs to have their own satellite. And in fact, one of the things that we're trying to do with Privateer, uh, we have something called Pono, and we're launching that uh, at the end of this year. Just like we have rideshare on the roads with Uber, right? Several of us can get on get on a common car and get someplace. We want to demonstrate the capability to oversubscribe a satellite so that, hey, if you're somebody that just wants to take an image of some place on the planet, or you want to get some data, you don't have to launch a fleet of satellites to do it. You can just pay or subscribe for a service to get that, right? And so how do we minimize the number of single-use satellites in space? That is something that I very much care about and that Privateer cares about as well. And one of the things um, that we're uh, absolutely you know, working on is, is that sort of a concept. And um, in terms of like the sustainability of space long-term, yeah, I mean, with all the junk that's up there, the junk, things collide with each other and become smaller pieces and these sorts of things. And that's that's definitely part of the problem. But the accountability is, you know, there's um, there are international laws in space and these are uh, really encased in treaties and conventions that the United Nations has from like 1967 to 1972, the Outer Space Treaty, Convention on Liability and Damage, um, Space Object Registration, that sort of stuff. The interesting thing is that liability and liability for any damage is on the shoulders of launching states. And launching states are defined in the treaty as the state that launches an object into space, the state that procures the launch of an object into space or the state from whose territory or facility an object is launched. And so, for example, 
if a if a company like Planet Labs in California, if one of their Dove satellites gets launched with India's PSLV, uh, you know, launch vehicle, that means that both the United States and India are jointly liable for any damage that one satellite could cause through its lifetime, including reentry uh, and maybe even you know hitting something on the on the surface. But but there is no place right now to look up what are the launching states associated with any given object, which means there's no real way to establish liability in space. And that's something else that I'm very much trying to work on is establishing that. Okay. That also, uh, I mean, uh, that rings a bell to um, uh, green transparency. Who, who's put, putting those satellites up there? Exactly. And so, um, you know, space situational awareness is the knowledge that we need in order to make decisions. And we want to make decisions that lead to desirable outcomes and space situation awareness needs to do three things. It needs to provide transparency. What's up there? Who does it belong to? What can it do? It needs to provide predictability. Where are things at now and where, where will they be at some point in the future? And it needs to provide a body of evidence to hold people accountable for their behaviors, which is what we're talking about right now. So I'm working on all three of those things. Okay. Are you optimistic? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Absolutely, man. You know, it's like, um, you know, people have mentioned this whole Kessler syndrome kind of thing. And, um, you know, for the viewers, basically, you know, Don Kessler, who, who was a NASA scientist, came up with this theory that at some point, even if we don't launch any more things, uh, there is this things will be colliding and becoming smaller pieces. And then there's this kind of runaway train cascading effect. And then space becomes unusable. I don't believe in the Kessler syndrome. Um, and the reason I don't is because in my science and engineering career so far, mother nature always shows herself to be very resilient. If we give her the chance I mean, what, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the Gaia principle, basically. Yeah. You know, it's like if, if we take the foot off the gas pedal, Mother Nature always tries to achieve a state of equilibrium. Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons I'm really optimistic is because nature is so resilient. Okay. We shouldn't just rely on that resilience. We should give nature a chance to be resilient by not being so quick in making decisions that lead to unintended consequences that we can't live with. Okay, I was just thinking of another consequence, which was recently in the news. I'm just referring to news about uh, Starlink, which is causing problems with astronomers. Yeah. Uh, so it's a single-purpose entity, as far as I understand. It's just providing connections on a global level, which, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I can... There's a benefit to that. There's a benefit for that, but at the same time, uh, it's causing uh, problems for another community. Sure. Uh, because it's hurting their uh, ability to look into space. So uh, would the, uh, the, the international body you're talking about also be an entity which would then make a decision, hey, um, uh, don't put up as much Starlink satellites as you thought you're going to do because it's jeopardizing other people's... Uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, so I, I think that those communities need to be taken into account. And look, it's not just astronomers. I would say... You know, uh, astronomers of the world, forgive me, but I'm going to put even more importance on indigenous communities. Indigenous communities have a relationship with the sky that's very sacred to them. Uh, that means a lot to them. 
And in fact, the skies are moving more and more. Nobody's asking any indigenous populations, how do you feel or what do you think about the sky moving uh, so much and that sort of stuff. And it's, um, yeah, it's detrimental culturally uh, to these people. And so I think that, you know, we need to be inclusive when we make decisions about what to put in space, not just do things because they're legal, but do things because we want to be in harmony and in balance with humanity and with uh life in general. But I will say that, you know, SpaceX um, in particular, they've been working with the astronomy community for several years and have redesigned their satellites to make them less reflective. So yeah. they, they, they're participating in this idea of trying to uh, minimize the impact to the dark and quiet skies. But for sure, it's not zero, right? So there is going to be... Um, there is going to be an impact because of satellites. Hey, and uh, I also briefly come back on the market debate about indigenous people because uh, for me it's quite interesting. You you again made a reference to the role of indigenous people. Uh, I was interviewing Jimmy Nelson, uh, who's a photographer who uh, took photographs on on indigenous people before they uh, pass away, which is an incredible journey of people who still in this century. Uh, take care of the planet. Uh, Tom Wheeler yeah. set up three um, systems, uh, realizing indigenous people for uh, are three percent of the planet, but they protect eighty percent of the environment. Yeah, so that that's exactly so. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, man. These indigenous people are the original stewards of Spaceship Earth, and the thing is, is that you know. Um, First, I was an astrodynamicist, and then I became a space environmentalist. And I became a space environmentalist in part because I saw the disparity uh, looking at land, air, and ocean and how we've explored those things, looking at how pockets of indigenous people with, uh, they have principles that they live by. One, they tend to believe that all things are interconnected. Yeah. So when you, when you believe in interconnectedness, your behavior is different. Two, they embrace this intergenerational contract of stewardship versus ownership of stuff, right? Ownership asks us to claim rights to things. Stewardship asks us to claim responsibility over stuff. They realize, hey, we humans are impermanent kind of stuff, but we need to have a successful conversation with the environment or else we don't make it. Indigenous people have had to find balance or else they don't make it. If they fish too much, if they do too much of this, that, or the other, Nature tells them, now you're hosed. You won't make it. You won't survive because you've done, you know, this irreparable damage. So they try to tread lightly and with caution when they approach trying to live in balance with life and that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, those are the OGs, the original stewards of Spaceship Earth. And as you said, they're uh, the minimal percentage of the population, but they're the ones that are the ones that take care of things the most. And we should be looking to them for uh, inspiration and their ways of life to apply that in harmony with Western science. So, so, so traditional ecological knowledge or ancient tech is their thing. We have TECH, high tech and deep tech. These things need to be married with each other. Machines need to be used to help us to scale um, solutions to these global problems. And I think harmonizing ancient tech with high tech and deep tech is the path forward for sure. I love it. Uh, 
I qualify myself as a pathological connector. I've been in community building for the last 20 years, and the, uh, this resonates uh, with me. Now, I want to ask you a couple of uh, questions at the end about, you could say, what drives you as a person. Now, you said, okay, the very first time I really saw the sky was in Montana. So uh, uh, the, the inspiration for your current journey is the sky you saw in Montana. But uh, to date, where do you draw your inspiration from? Is that in still in space or is that in people you meet or people you are uh, aware of? Yeah, so the whole reason, the interesting thing about the sky is that for me, the sky is a mirror of humanity. When I look to the sky, it's to know more about me, about us. And at the end of the day, I'm human. I'm, I, I'm part of this uh, human population. I feel that... Um, you know, I've been through a lot of traumatic experiences in my life. Um, you know, when I was the, I was born in the United States, my mom from Haiti, my father from Sierra Leone, but they got divorced when I was like two years old and my father had visitation rights. And at the age of seven, he kidnapped me. And, um, you know, after nine days of being kidnapped, the authorities found me and put me on a plane back to my mom. And my mom and I fled the country to Caracas with a cousin so that my father would never find me again. And I, there's like all these traumatic experiences that I've been through. And the thing that, um, you know, the thing that I guess I want to put out there is that, uh, you know, even in my teenage years, being in this military boarding school, at some point at 16, I uh, lost the desire to live. I felt very suicidal. And in this place of rock bottomness, the interesting thing that I found, which was, unexpected is I felt and in, in, at the night sky in, in my military school is I felt connected to the universe and to the source of all existence. And I felt an ocean of endless compassion and love, which was surprising to me. And I had two choices. I could either succumb to my experiences and just react and uh, be somebody that just, you know, acts and anger and all this other stuff, just like many other people, or I could try to make my pain be of service to other people. And that's what I chose. So my inspiration is to the source of all existence, to this interconnectedness. My source of inspiration are these indigenous practices. Um, and I want my pain to be of service to others. That's my inspiration. Wow. A question related to that is also uh, how do you define success in the work you do? When are you satisfied? I can tell you this, right? Um, part of me is already satisfied um, because I see evidence that uh, things that I'm doing um, are resonating with people. You know, um, several months ago, somebody gave me their business card and their title on their business card was space environmentalist. Ah. I thought that was awesome because I'd never seen that before, right? It's this, the whole space environmentalist thing is some term that I came up with just a few years ago. People are already using that on their business cards. Um, there are conversations that I have with people in the US government and other governments. And I see some of my words show up in official policy and things like that. Um, and every once in a while, uh, I get people that email me and they said, Hey, I had no idea about space. And now I'm a space environmentalist and I'm giving talks and I'm talking to people and this and the other. And so to me, success means 
if something happens to me where, you know, my life this this time around, Marie Baja ceases to exist, momentum, there's enough momentum globally where other people are picking up and doing this sort of work. So to me, success is more of humanity resonating with interconnectedness, embracing stewardship, and recruiting empathy. Those are the three things that I like to see as evidence of success. Okay, final question, Marila. Um, maybe you've already answered this one, but is that also how you want the world to remember you as a space environmentalist? Um, I think in part, I'd like the world to remember me as a space environmentalist, but um, I think more than anything, I want the... I want the world to remember me as a servant. That's that's how I want the world to remember me. This guy was a servant to humanity. He was a servant to Spaceship Earth. That's how I'd like to be remembered. And if possible, um, I'd like my children to think that I wasn't a horrible uh, father and that, um, you know, that, because uh, it's really tough to juggle the family. I have three kids. Uh, and I'm, you know, uh, pretty much at, I'm separated, divorced kind of thing. I have a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a six-year-old who's like behind me. And um, my my mission of talking to people around the globe certainly has come at a cost to time that I've spent with my own family. So it's just, it's been really challenging, man. And, um, but yeah, overall, I just want to be remembered as a servant. Well, thank you for serving us. And Taking you, taking us on a journey through space, and um, I'm very confident that a number of people watching this will realize we need uh, space environmentalists, and uh, hopefully you've been able to motivate a couple of people to join the race. And uh, thank you so much. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.